0: sports radio 1043 the fan every saturday morning it's terry wickstrom outdoors terry takes you inside the outdoors you know hunting fishing camping it's terry wickstrom outdoors now here's terry good morning it's gonna be a beautiful day out that was a little bit of a rough opening kyle they they kind of they kind of threw a wrench at us there. We'll recover quickly, though. We'll yeah, see. that's, uh, that's li- what
1: happens when they put it in automatic. I, I literally could not do anything.
0: Yeah, uh, we'll make up for it. That's fine. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, and we have a full uh, two hours of show lined up for you. You know, a lot of people are getting outdoors for the first time or going back to the outdoors after a long time and they don't unnecessarily understand some of the pitfalls. We're going to cover a lot of that in the first hour of today's show. We're also, in the, during this hour, Ronnie Castiglione is going to give us a fishing report on the Big Thompson and the Poudre Rivers. Second hour, Nate Zielinski is going to come on, and he is going to continue his big game hunting series. And then we'll talk fishing with Jack's Outdoors, and uh, Chad Lachance is going to talk about how to fish the reservoirs for falling water. But let's go right to the phones now and get started. Uh, joining us is Nine News meteorologist Corey Repenhagen. Good morning, Corey. Hey, good morning, Terry. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Um, if you heard my introduction, there's a lot of people getting outdoors and there's a lot of pitfalls outdoors. Now, you don't want to live in a shell. Too much of that's going on because of COVID right now, anyway. Um, but you need to be aware that there's dangers out there and at least try to mitigate it or put the percentages in your favor. And one of those, you and I talked earlier, I think we both agree, one of those that uh, you can never eliminate unless you just maybe go sit in a car and don't ever do anything. But if you're going to go outside in Colorado, one danger that you're going to have to kind of watch for is lightning, isn't it?
2: Lightning is something that you definitely have to watch out for. You know, it's interesting with uh, the state of Colorado and just the way the statistics kind of bear out. You know, we we get about 3.7 million lightning strikes uh, per year, and about 500,000 of those hit the ground. So... That sounds like a lot, and that is a lot. But compared to other states, you know, we, we rank about 20th uh, as far as the amount of lightning strikes. And and the, if you look at it density-wise, uh, to give the smaller states an equal field, we're, we rank about 32nd. So really, the staggering stat when it comes to lightning in Colorado is the deaths. Because Colorado, despite being highly ranked in some of those other categories. We rank fourth overall in the amount of depth, and that is, like you're saying, that's because we're an outdoor state. We love to get out there, and that's where we find ourselves in trouble.
0: Well, and I think some of the places we recreate, too, we we like to recreate on the water, of course, but we also certainly like to recreate in our mountains, and you get up at those elevations, and the dangers change, and you really need to be uh, aware. Is there any place outside that you're immune where you wouldn't get hit from lightning well the
2: short answer to that is no there there is no place outdoors that is safe so i think uh, i like the way you kind of mentioned it in the introduction of your show that it's just about a mitigating the the probability you know uh i I deal with probability a lot and so like i was saying with those last year uh, we had 500,000 lightning strikes actually hit the ground in the state of Colorado and we had one one fatality so you look at those odds and you know if you just look at it plain and simple you you realize that the chances are very low and i think in the back of the, our minds everyone kind of realizes that and so we do take some risks but you don't want to be that one person or two as Colorado averages to two, two uh, people killed every year. And we do have, we have had one already this year. So really it's about just mitigating, taking a probability that's already low and then going further to, to even reduce that probability even more. And there's several things you can do.
0: What are some of those things and kind of take us through, um you know where you're in more danger and what you can do to mitigate that a little bit
2: right yeah the first thing that i always say and it's not just because i'm a weatherman. it's uh you know try to try to get stay up on that forecast even though colorado uh we ha- we are like clockwork you know afternoon uh to, to sundown is when we get the majority of our lightning but you can get a little bit more specific forecast of where you're going and timing wise uh that may help you plan and then once you get out there into the outdoors you have all different kinds of risks depending on what you're doing uh one one of the first things uh, i like to talk about is uh hiking above treeline because uh you know that's it that's something that's very popular in our state and it's even growing and we're finding that you know in this uh, coronavirus and COVID-19 uh, thing that we're going through that people are really trying to seek isolation and that they're you know either getting back into that um, or just trying it for the first time so um, the, the golden rule you know a, a lot of a, a lot of people say you just got to get up and down quickly in the morning that's why you leave when it's dark and so you get down below tree line um, you know, before noon, Um, that's usually when the, like today, we're going to have afternoon thunderstorms probably pop up at about, about noon in the high country. And so lightning, the way it works is, you know, the grid that it strikes, it's almost always going to hit the highest object in that little grid. Uh, And there's no way to really say how big that is a hundred yards, 200 yards or however, but you, if you're above treeline, line you're going to be likely the highest object in that in that strike zone. And that's what you have to avoid. And then uh you know, we always hear about people um being hit you know, hits rocks and things that are up in the high country above tree line and that lightning travels on the ground and and gets to you and that is actually how most of the lightning fatalities happen it's not a direct hit the lightning travels through the ground and gets to you now that
0: that um, that's a great that's a great point because i think people think that you know they get hit or they hear it hits a tree and we'll talk about that in a minute and it jumps to them and and I, those things can happen but you're right, it really electrifies the ground, and the closer you are to where it hits the ground, the more of that shock you absorb. Is that right? That's exactly it. I mean, uh, if you look
2: through the, the lightning data, and, you know, the National Weather Service has a very specific uh, list of injuries and fatalities that have happened over the years, and you'll you always see that, you know, it hits a pole, it hits a power pole, it hits an isolated tree. And it moves uh, on the ground. Like you said, it can jump, uh, you know, and expand, but usually it travels on the ground, and that's how it gets to you. So um, that that right there is is your biggest clue about if you want to uh, try to reduce some of these risks when you're in the high country or uh, out just on a hike, uh, just walking through the neighborhood, everything that you do, you can kind of take that into mind and you if you get caught out um the 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 one thing that you can do is to separate yourself from that object that is most likely to get hit and i'll you know i'll always take a look around um i I like the, the strike grid is not really defined on how you know where that lightning is going to come down but i like to look at about a hundred yards, or maybe 150 yards, and see—you know—am I, am I out in the open? Am I hearing thunder? And am I the tallest thing in about a 150-yard grid? Uh, that is what you want to avoid. And then the next thing you want to avoid is being uh, close to the, uh, the isolated object that is the largest thing, like the the single standalone tree or the power line. Or uh, some sort of a building or shed, those are going to be more likely to get struck than you directly, so the next thing you've got to do is separate yourself from that uh, object and try to get yourself away from the the tallest being
0: the tallest object out there now on the um how do you know if lightning's too close? I mean, I hear people say, well, I count this time between the lightning and the thunder because of the difference in time. But you told me that if you can hear lightning, you're in danger of being struck or hear thunder. Is that right? Yeah, that that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, I, I'm a storm chaser. Uh, I love to photograph
2: lightning. And I am, I've am i always been mesmerized by lightning. But it is the only weather uh, phenomenon that actually scares me you know i'm not afraid of tornadoes or hurricanes or any of this other stuff but it's the lightning because you just don't you, you for one you can't see it coming uh you don't know where it's going to strike the golden rule is if you hear thunder then you can be struck by lightning so that that lightning uh, a majority of it will happen within kind of the the rain area but we have documented cases where lightning has hit people more than 10 miles away from the center of that storm. So that is why they say that if you hear it, you got to get indoors. You know, they stop all these sporting events. Uh, if there's an eight, if there's a lightning strike eight miles within a certain perimeter. And that is for that reason, because you just, you just don't know. You can't say, Oh, well, you know, I, I, I just counted six seconds. It's, you know, it's, it's three miles away. I'm, I'm fine right now. Um, that's not always the case. So, like we said, the, the probability is low, but you ha- you don't want to be that one person. So just to reduce, reduce, reduce that probability as much as you can to make sure that you're not that one person.
0: Now, we only have a couple minutes left, so I just want to take you through a couple scenarios and get a quick answer. What about I'm up above treeline, I hear the lightning, should I lay down?
2: No, they they actually, research tells you not to lay down flat uh, because it kind of increases the surface area of uh, where a lightning can impact your body. So what they kind of tell you to do... First of all, if you can get to some sort of shelter underneath a uh, you know a, a ridgeline, uh, so uh, in in a, in a group of trees, if you are close to tree line, that you kind of have a decision to make. You know, can I make it to safety, or if the lightning is just pounding all around you and you don't feel like you can get somewhere, they kind of tell you to crouch down with your your feet just slightly separated and kind of crouch down on the ground. So it, well, for one, it makes you smaller and for two, it kind of reduces the area in which, you know, the the current can travel through your body. So it's a terrible situation to be caught out in the open um,
0: when there's lightning coming. Now, what about in my tent? Am I safe in my tent? Or do I have to be really careful where I set up camp? Yeah, no,
2: the, the tent does not provide any type of shelter, um, from you. So, yeah, it is a good idea to be smart, uh, in, in selecting a location. So, if you're, if you're camping, uh, and you want to, you're, you're just kind of scouting out a spot to put your tent, um, you kind of use that 100 yard, 150 yard look around, see if what, what in this area is most likely to be struck. And then uh, let's, let's separate ourselves from that. And if you're in a group of trees, you know, you just by being in a group of trees, you've kind of reduced the uh, probability of you being impacted because there are so many targets. Uh, That's not to say that being outside in a group of trees is safe because most people who die from lightning uh, are taking shelter under a tree. But you just know that you're reducing your probability by separating yourself and your tent uh, from from that area that's most likely to be struck and if there's a vehicle nearby if you're camping with your vehicle close that you might have a plan to get to that vehicle if uh, lightning does start to hit
0: we are out of time but getting in that metal vehicle is really about the only place where you're really protected isn't it
2: it really is. You know, they call it a Faraday cage because you're completely surrounded by metal, and that lightning current kind of travels on the surface of the metal until it gets grounded uh, down to the bottom of the vehicle. So um, that is one thing. That is one place that's really safe. I, I love I love being inside as well because um, that, that's a large, uh, you know, structure that can protect you. They say stay away from the pipes because there are some rare cases where electricity, if, you know, from the strike hits the pipes and can injure you inside the house but a vehicle a house those are the safe places
0: we are way out of time cory but really great information thank you for joining us we've been talking lightning aware with cory Repenhagen, nine news meteorologist cory thanks for joining us today
2: thanks terry have a good day
0: you bet we're going to take a quick time out when we come out we're going to talk about another thing you have to be aware of and that's bears there has been over 1,800 encounters with bears in Colorado this year. All that and more on Terry Wicksham Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. I the when
1: the got heavy.
0: Terry Wilkstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Growing up but still having fun in the outdoors, 65 years serving the outdoor public. Let's go right to the phones. Joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife, is uh, Bridget Cushell. Good morning, Bridget. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, we're kind of talking about some of the things you can encounter in the outdoors that we don't want people to stay in. We want them to get out. But another thing that we uh, we have a very robust bear population in Colorado, and well, Attacks and especially fatalities are rare. They do happen. We want to kind of tell people, we've talked over and over about if you build your home up in bear country or even in the cities, that garbage and food and bird feeders all attract those. But there's things people do when they're hiking and camping and things like that that can influence whether they have a bear encounter, isn't there?
3: Absolutely. Like you said, Colorado is home to a large population of black bears. And so it's really important that people understand that bears and humans can live in harmony together if we share our outdoor spaces. So as humans, it's our responsibility to take proactive steps to avoid conflicts with bears. So we provide a bunch of resources on our website about best practices for when you're camping and backpacking and hiking about how to secure any food or anything with an odor to make sure that you're not attracting bears to your campsite or to you on a trail.
0: Now, before we even go get into some of those things and some of the details, how many bears do we have in Colorado? Do we know?
3: Yeah. So our estimated population is between 17,000 and 20,000 in the state.
0: And, I I understand uh, there was a news article that there's been about 1,800 bear encounters this year. Now, an encounter might be just seeing a black bear. Is that right? That doesn't mean anything negative necessarily happened.
3: That's correct.
0: So, you know, so people do love to see them. I mean, I love when I'm out, I love to see wildlife. Just make sure you're seeing them at a distance, right, and not doing anything to get them closer. So let's, let's start with I'm on a trail. What are some of the things I have, you know, with a lot of people going out, is garbage on trails becoming an issue? And what about what I'm carrying with me while I'm hiking?
3: So it is really important that we all still follow those leave-no-trace best practices and principles, which means keeping the trails clean and and not leaving any trash or littering on the trails. So when you're backpacking and, and hiking, you want to make sure, first of all, with bears, alert all the time so that means leaving your headphones at your campsite and making sure that you're just really paying attention to your surroundings and then also being more cautious at dawn and dusk so paying closer attention to areas where you might not be able to hear everything perfectly so if you're you know hiking by waterfalls or loud water you just want to be very very alert also keeping dogs leashed at all times so making sure that you're not going to go and scare a bear. You also never want to feed or approach a bear. So it's important to know that bears have a really strong sense of smell. So what we recommend is double bagging food and packing out all food waste as well, which includes your apple cores and banana peels to Encourage bears to not see trails as a food source.
0: You know, that's a that's a great point because we talk about that in houses and we'll talk about it a little bit at your campsite. But bears most bear attacks happen because bears get conditioned to where human activity provides food. Now there's times when you just are walking through the woods and you surprise one or you have a sow with her cubs. Those things happen too. But I, a huge percentage is because bears are conditioned to associate people with food. And so they're going to hang out in those areas and they get aggressive to people because they get conditioned to people being around. You mentioned an apple core or banana peel. You know, 20 years ago, people would that. well, that's organic. I'm just going to throw it out and the and it'll eventually rot into the soil. Well, animals will eat it. But you're right. If you start attracting bears to that trail, there's going to be possible negative interactions And the same thing goes for your campsites, doesn't it?
3: Yes, absolutely. So you're right. Most conflicts between people and bears is traced back to easily accessible human food or trash or any attractant that has a strong odor. And so a bear's natural drive to eat can overcome their fear of humans. However, our wildlife experts agree that bears are are not naturally aggressive towards humans most of them are actually wary of humans but if they become too comfortable around humans then that's when they can destroy property or become a threat to human safety
0: now if i've kept my um we're going to not have time to go through every detail but you know campsites you don't ever want to bring anything that As an odor into your tent and surprisingly a lot of people don't know that that includes toiletries and lip gloss and things too doesn't it
3: absolutely you're right again anything with an odor that could and sunscreen uh, body spray anything like that you just want to make sure that it's safely stored and secure so that bears aren't going to want to come into your campsite
0: well one thing that i know people mistake they make they cook over an open fire and they get a lot of the smoke on them. Well, that smoke has, like, the meat they cook. They wear those clothes to bed at night, or they take those clothes into their tent. The bear can smell that miles away, can't it?
3: You're right. Bears can smell that. So that's why it's so important to keep a clean campsite and scrape your grill grates. Make sure that you're cleaning dishes. Anything with an odor, it's, it's always good to give a good scan to the campsite and say anything with a smell Make sure it's locked away, put in a bear canister, a bear locker, or locked in your car. And so when it's down, lo- throw it out. Just make sure it's locked.
0: You know, locking your car is so important. They are so smart about learning to open cars. And when they get inside, they usually can't get out, and they really do damage. Last thing, let's take a minute or so. If I do encounter a bear, whether one comes to my campsite or I'm on the trail, what do I do?
3: So if a bear comes into your campsite, what you want to do is haze it away by making loud noises, yelling, banging on pots and pans, using a car horn, an air horn. You also want to notify our staff if a bear does come into your campsite so that we can monitor it. And some people do carry bear spray when they are camping. And if a bear comes up to you on a trail, you want to stay calm, stand still, speak in that firm voice, Most likely, the bear will want to identify you and leave. You never want to run from a bear. And if a bear doesn't leave, then you want to wave your arms, make yourself look bigger, continue to face the bear, and then slowly back away until it's out of sight. And if a bear does get within 40 feet, you can use bear spray.
0: And if it does attack, because black bears will predate on humans once they get conditioned, you always fight back. Grizzly bears are a different story, but the stories you've heard about grizzly bears where you play dead, that's not how you react to a black bear. Anyways, uh, last question real quick. Is there a lot of resources on the Parks and Wildlife website about bear encounters?
3: There is. So again, because we live in bear country, it's so important to be bear aware. So we have all kinds of videos and fact sheets and educational materials and best practices. So we really encourage people come over to our website, check out our materials, and you can learn how to live in harmony with bears.
0: All right. Bridget, thank you so much. I think it's an important message with everybody get out, and it's going to be more important as we get towards fall when these bears are fattening up for the winter. So thank you so very much for joining us.
3: Absolutely. Thank you, Terry.
0: All right. You're listening to Terry Wisham outdoors, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear on one oh four three the fan. <laughs> him up a little today, some Jim Croce. Yeah, I like him. He died way too young. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear, where you can get fishing, kayaking, hunting equipment, camping, grilling, clothing, and so much more. Check them out. Let's go right to the phones. Joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is uh, Jason Clay. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Hey, you know, uh, recently, swimming was closed at Cherry Creek because of a blue-green algae. Now, is this something nefarious that has all of a sudden showed up in our state that we've never had before? Uh, do people need to be aware of it? Is this uh, kind of what what causes these algaes? Do we have them all the time? And uh, what? Do we, let's go kind of through it. Let's start with that.
4: Okay. Well, um, no, it's not something new to the state. And, um, you know, every really about every summer it pops up. So algae is common and a natural part of our waters, um, but there is a certain type of algae that can produce toxins that can harm people, animals, and even the local environment. And what happens is, you know, although these organisms occur naturally, they become a problem when they multiply rapidly and resulting in uh, a dense concentration or what we call an algae bloom. And
0: um, Go ahead.
4: There is one type of, of algae that can produce the toxins, and the one that people probably have commonly heard of is blue-green algae.
0: Now, I was a little facetious in saying we don't have them. Obviously, these algaes mm. have existed. They pop up in concentrations, like you said, over time. We've had them here. Um, what kind of things? Is it the weather? Is it the water flowing in? What causes these major blooms where we could get problems like this?
4: Yeah, it's it's kind of a combination of, of what you said though. So they tend to happen when the ecosystem gets a little bit out of balance. Um, really, it's you know high temperatures, um, standing or slow moving water um, will help with the uh, with the toxins or the algae uh, get into that bloom, and excess nutrients that come from a variety of things. Uh, you know, it could be stuff that you put in your, uh, that's in the fertilizer and uh, that you put on your lawn from deicers, even dog waste. So phosphorus and nitrogen are the two big ones that, that really help uh, feed an
0: algae bloom. And so because of that, urban water bodies of water tend probably to be a little more susceptible. Although if you're in farmland where they fertilize a lot, that they can be susceptible also. And you know, Cherry Creek, they didn't close the beach; they closed it to swimming. Um, And Cherry Creek doesn't get a tremendous amount of flow. At some times, it changes, and and it uh, it does get quite warm because it's shallow. Was was Cherry Creek just closed because the water could have caused some harm, possibly? Yes, closed as a
4: precautionary level. Um, You know, there is so you can look at lakes and and determine um, if there is algae present. But the only way to test if there are the harmful toxins is a laboratory test. Um, and when those tests come back as positive with the toxins, then they close the area until the levels dissipate. Um, and so that was the case at Cherry Creek. Um, it happens. It could happen at, at you know any of these bodies of waters. Again, that kind of has stagnant waters. When it gets hot, uh, we've seen it at Chatfield before. It's happened at Bar Lake, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. At one of the state waters, you know those are some of the popular spots um and even the dog off leash areas uh, you know that really kind of raises um awareness um in the in the media or you know on social media sites if you know a dog can get sick from ingesting the water um, so that's when you hear about it quite often
0: now who who checks and how often do they check for this?
4: yeah, so it's um up to the managing agency to test the waters, um, and you can test it right away um, with a strip test, but that doesn't necessarily give you 100% um, accurate results as far as the toxins. The only way to definitively determine the toxins is a laboratory test, and that is done by the CDPHE.
0: Now, normally, do these things just clear up by themselves, given a little time?
4: Yeah, it'll dissipate. Uh, with cooler temperatures after wind events or storms that help mix the water um, and cloudy days and some of the other natural factors.
0: Now, now, if if I'm out fishing, now let's say you're recommending I don't get in the water and you're saying you wouldn't want dogs to drink the water. What about if I'm a fisherman? Do I have to worry about touching fish that are in the water or eating fish?
4: Um, no, as long as you... Uh, properly clean the fish so you want to dispose of the the guts Um, and we do recommend rinsing off that fish as well um, just with some clean water Um, but really the the fish if you're um, if you're an angler catch fish in a lake where there's algae um, it's okay to to still consume that fish just keep it clean Um, the other thing we do say too is um, you know if you're say you're on a boat instead of shoreline fishing Uh, You know, don't drive over any algae blooms that you can see. And just the the reasoning behind that is, is one, you know, it can splash water up on you, um, and you want to avoid contact um, with a big algae bloom.
0: Now, if I do have contact with the water, best just – nowadays there's lots of reasons to wash my hands pretty frequently, isn't there? And that would be one of them, wouldn't it?
4: Mm, That would be one. Yeah, if if you do come into contact, um, you want to – rinse yourself off Um, if maybe you, uh, your children, or your dog um, ingested it uh, accidentally or uh, just so happened that the dog, say, drank the water, um, you want to watch for some of the warning signs. And if you do think you have um, uh, a reaction to the algae toxins from ingesting it, then you want to contact either your poison center or your uh, local health physician or in the case of your pets, your veterinary.
0: Are there, is there information on Parks and Wildlife website covering this? There is, and there's also a lot on the CDPHE website.
4: they got a great FAQ document. Um, they walk through, you know, who tests, how do they test, um, and also on our website, we have some stuff up. Uh, we, we did one most recently with Cherry Creek as um, their swim area had closed down.
0: All right, we are out of time, but I think it's just important to be aware if there's any anything's posted or if tests show something and change your behavior a little bit, and it will clear up. You'll be fine. You'll be able to swim in Cherry Creek again soon. And, and just one of the things is you get outdoors. We all need to be aware of. Jason, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: All right, Jason Clay from Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Um, we're going to take a quick time out. We come back. Ronnie Castiglione is going to... Um, He's going to talk some fishing in the Pooter and the Big Thompson River. All that and more coming up when Terry Wickstrom Outdoors presented by Jack's Outdoors on
4: 1043
0: The Fan. You know. Well, we had uh, somebody named Tracy that listens to the show, and they said that they love the Eagles, but they like Dire Straits better. Now, I love them both, but we may have to get into a debate about that.
1: Yeah, both are both are pretty good, so
0: uh, I, yeah, I, don't have, I don't have an issue with either one. You can't lose on that. Hey, you're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Let's go right to the phones, and joining us, one of our favorite contributors, he's been so busy fishing lately he hasn't called, and that's Ronnie Castiglione. Good morning, Ronnie.
1: Good morning, Terry. You know, that, that Tracy lady, she must be almost as old as you, Terry.
0: I, I think it's a guy. I'm not sure. So. <laughs> Unless
1: it's <laughs> well, Tracy. He must be, be all, almost as old as you.
0: <laughs> be careful. Hey, you know, um, I know that there's somebody in your household that's really important having a big day today. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it is our little girl's birthday today, Terry, and we're excited about it. She's one years old, and uh, it's been an exciting year for us. And I know I haven't been able to call in quite as much as I used to, but uh, I'm looking forward to doing some more call-in segments going forward. But, yeah, it is her birthday, and we're excited today. We're going to have a, have have the grandparents nice. over and uh, have a little celebration, and uh, it's good times, Terry, good times.
0: Have you started teaching her to cast yet? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not caught yet, Terry. As soon as she's able to stand, she'll get a rod shoved into her hand, so uh oh. you know we'll make that happen here shortly. so
0: All but, right. uh, it's well, a lot of fun, and I'm of...
1: definitely looking forward to teaching her how to fish.
0: Oh, well, it is a great time. Hey, speaking of fishing, you've been fishing the rivers, you know later on, Chad is going to join us. He's going to talk about the reservoir water falling the um the reservoirs we everybody calls this the dog days of summer. A lot of that's because the fish habits just change in the reservoirs, and it can be more difficult to locate them, and you have to work a little harder, but they're still good fishing. But a lot of times the rivers really shine at this time, don't they?
1: Absolutely, Terry. You know, I mean, one of the big reasons people call it the dog days of summer, too, is – If you're out on a boat, it's 100 degrees out. It's pretty hot in those boats, Terry. So this time of year, as it gets to be real real hot, we're getting to see these, you know, 100-degree temperatures every now and then. And it's a good opportunity to get up and and do a little wet wading and stand waist-deep in one of these cool mountain streams or rivers. And uh, it's going to cool you off. You're going to get to see some incredible scenery, and you're going to be able to catch a lot of fish, Terry.
0: Well, take us through some of the places you've been and what kind of techniques you've been using.
1: Uh, you know, I've been up on the, on the Poudre River quite a bit, and I've also been on the Big Thompson River quite a bit, Terry. And those are kind of the rivers I grew up on here in Northern Colorado. And, and the fishing's been outstanding. You know, the, the Poudre is, is just kind of how it's always been. The water level's at a real good, uh, a real good height right now as far as the amount of water coming down. Uh, it's, it's still coming down at a fairly good clip, Terry, but it is starting to slow a little bit. And, you know, the Big Thompson's kind of that same thing. The water's still coming down at a pretty good flow, but it is starting to slow and starting to, go down a little bit, and it's been my experience over the years of growing up here, Terry, that if you can time when the rivers start to drop, when the flows start to go down, what that allows you to do is allows you to go out and get on some of these stretches of river that, you know, a couple weeks ago or a week ago when the water was flowing a little higher... It might have been unfishable at that point, Terry. All those pools might have just been blown out with white water. But if you time the water as as, as the flow is going down, a lot of times stretches will open up to you, Terry. And you may be the first person, you know, since the beginning of the year to get out there and fish that stretch effectively. And it just really has to do with the fact that the flows come down now and all those pools are starting to show themselves.
0: Now, do you tend to approach them with a conventional rod or a fly rod or both?
1: You know, I'm more of a conventional guy nowadays, Terry. My elbows can't really handle the fly rod anymore. But, uh, you know, the conventional gear definitely is an advantage when you still have some of the higher water flows. Uh, It definitely allows you to get a cast out into some of those pools that are on the far side of the river. And you don't necessarily have to worry about something like your fly line falling down to the water and kind of getting grabbed by the current. So, you know, I like to approach it with conventional gear. Uh, you know, having the right gear is very, very important, Terry, if you're going to get up there and fish those rivers. And, you know, just a few suggestions I'd make to people is, you know, you don't want to overpower these fish to some extent, so you don't want to show up with, you know, real, real heavy bass gear or that kind of a thing. But you also don't want to approach them with too light a gear, Terry. One of the big mistakes I see people show up and do at the rivers is that they tend to show up with the smallest spinning reels they have uh, but a lot of times, those spinning reels don't eat up enough line on the return rate. Terry, you really need a fast reel if you're going to go out there and fish in in, in a fast-moving water. You got to be able to reel your presentations faster than the currents moving the presentation uh it's not just because maybe you're trying to get the lure to work you know something like a spinner or a jerk bait it really has to do with just staying in control staying in contact with your presentations and not getting snagged as much as you will if the the river has the ability to go faster than you can reel you're definitely going to go up there and you're going to snag a lot terry
0: what are some of the presentations you've been using
1: uh, you know, this time of year, it's a lot of jig fishing for me. You know, I, I have been throwing some real small jerk baits a little bit, especially in some of the bigger runs and some of the bigger pools. But a lot of these pools that, as they just start to open up, Terry, as the water just starts to fall off them, um, they're going to be small runs with a lot of really, really fast moving water around the outside of them. Uh, a lot of times the jig is going to be the best presentation that you can put in that scenario, Terry. So I've been up there, I've been throwing a lot of our kind of standard stuff, you know, an eight-ounce jig with a, a two-and-a-half-inch or a three-inch gulp minnow on it. Uh, that's kind of my go-to presentation, especially in the open fishing areas. And then as I get into some of the areas that maybe flies and lures only, where you can't really utilize the salted or scented presentations, then a lot of times I go to something like a junior fluke or something like that, that's unsalted, unscented, but basically has that same kind of body profile as that gulp minnow. Um, and then I also do a lot of little tube jigs, a lot of the real small little croppy-sized tube jigs, little one and three-quarter inch or two and a half inch tube jigs. Those on an eighth-ounce jig head are also very, very effective for trout this time of year, Terry.
0: I've used a lot of marabou jigs, too, that really work well in those situations. Have you ever used the marabou?
1: Absolutely, Terry. You know, I I love tying hair jigs. You know, I'm kind of a a, a proficient at that. I've done it all my life. And so hair jigs are definitely something that I like to do. Uh, The marabou jigs can be outstanding. I tie a lot of little craw patterns that also work very, very well up there on the river. A lot of little bucktail jigs, things like that. All of those presentations can really be effective, Um, you know, but it's really, there's some other skill sets that really come into play when you're up there and you're fishing a jig, Terry. You have to be very, very Accurate with your cast for one, and I can't tell you how many people I've had on the on the boat, Terry, over the years on guide trips that may be able to cast really, really effectively at distance. You know, they've got that overhand cast down to down to uh, you know uh, a science. But if I ask them to cast at something that's only ten feet away, they struggle. Uh, you got to be able to do that little underhand flip, pitch kind of technique, Terry, into those close little pools. That little swinging pendulum of the jig, and just kind of releasing it and let it shoot forward. You got to be able to do those short little accurate. Accurate cast. Um, the other thing is just you gotta really be in control of your line hole, Terry. I talked about that a little bit before. It's very, very important that when you make a cast into these pools and the water's you know really ripping in and around those runs and pools, that you gotta, you know, really shut that bail really, really quick, almost before that jig hits the water and get that rod tip as high as you can, Terry, so that you have a, a straight line of sight from that top tip of the rod all the way to where the line hits the water, and you don't really allow any of that line to lay down in the water, Terry. The minute that line lays down into that fast-moving water, it's going to rip that presentation out of that pool. So line control can be a very, very important skill set in casting. And I tell you what, Terry, even after you know doing it my whole life, if I haven't been up there in a while and I get up there, it usually takes me about 15, 20 minutes to really kind of get my rhythm back down as far as making my cast. But once I do it, then I'm accurate for the rest of the day, Terry.
0: Okay. One last question real quick. What differences are you seeing in the fish between the big T and the pooter? Browns, rainbows? yeah we
1: 're seeing lots of brown trout on the on the Pooter, which is kind of you know par for the course with the occasional rainbow right there. You know the Big Thompson really has gone through a resurgence, Terry. They did a lot of work up over, up there over the last few years, really improving the fish habitat, improving access as far as parking, you know kind of improving everything from the from the flood, and you know they 've also done some pretty good stocking of that river, so on the Big Thompson right now we 're seeing a lot of rainbow trout with the occasional brown trout, so it 's kind of flip flop. Um, The Big T is definitely fishing a little bit bigger for size as far as what I'm seeing. Uh, You see a lot of numbers of fish, you know, fishing that 8 to maybe 10, 11-inch range. But for every 10 or so that you catch in the Big Thompson, you catch one that's maybe in that 14 to 16-inch range. And that's a pretty nice fish for that little river, Terry. So the Big T has uh, kind of been my choice as of late just because I'm kind of finding myself having to learn that river again, Terry. They they definitely changed a lot of the, a lot of the areas I used to like to fish. And it's kind of been a, a kind of cool thing to go up there and kind of have to relearn the river, Terry.
0: We are out of time, Ronnie, but great, great information. Thanks for joining us. We will talk to you again very soon, and happy birthday to Lily.
1: All right, buddy. You have a good one. Thank you so much.
0: You bet. By the way, you fly fishermen, I'm understanding that the hopper dropper on those rivers right now is going phenomenal. We'll take a quick time out. and we come back, Nate Zielinski is going to join us and talk hunting on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.